And so right now we're in a fun section of scriptures. We're looking at various laws. Now I remember Exodus 20, Moses is given the, the 10 commandments, right? Up on Mount Sinai. And so he's given that. And now we're seeing from the next few chapters now, from chapter 20 and on, we're seeing a bit of a breakdown now into some more of that kind of a, an application and an amplification of the law of God and how this kind of breaks down in their various um, social and, and civil kind of um, community together. And so we're seeing this all sort of unfolding. Chapter 23 gets into some more things here. It says in verse one, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Verse three, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So these verses that I just looked at are all kind of dealing with this judicial sort of context. When you are having to, you know, see somebody go on trial and have to kind of dispute over a, a civil kind of matter, here's the way that you're to uphold these things. First of all, he says, don't be circulating a false report. Don't be going and saying, hey, this person really, you know, should be found guilty because look at all these things they've done. And, and to be just kind of spreading gospel, gossip where it's not really even true, right? So you're to be seeking to uphold truth and justice when you're undergoing some kind of a trial. And that's always the way it should be for believers, where we're always seeking to be upholding truth. We wanna be careful that we're not spreading any kind of falsehoods, lies, and, and gossip all gets included. And that's interesting, isn't it, how for Christians, gossip is one of those things that can easily slide under the radar, right? We don't wanna put that oftentimes on the same level as lying or spreading falsehoods, but sometimes gossip has a way of just kind of spreading falsehoods um, in a way that we oftentimes don't even realize. And God takes that very serious here. And so when it comes to all these things, you know, not slandering or gossiping, don't, don't take someone's word for it, what you hear. Make sure that you're going to the source. Make sure that it's true. Rather than continuing on, you might have heard something and go, oh my goodness, did you hear what so-and-so did? And, and you may have just heard that report come to you. That report may have come from another person that passed on from another person that got it from another person. You know the, the whole game, right, of, uh, what is it, telephone, right? You go in a circle, you just say one thing, you pass it on. By the time it gets to the end of the circle, it's like completely different. That's the way it often is with, with gossip. And we need to be careful. There's one woman that was a real gossip in the church. And one day she saw a man's uh, truck from church parked out front, you know, uh, a local pub. And she thought, oh my goodness, look at this guy. He's just out drinking all night. Oh my goodness, what a shame. And she starts spreading this word around, you know. And, and he's like, my goodness, she doesn't even know what's really going on. She's just spreading gossip. And he thought, well, here's one thing I can do to try to uh, prevent her from spreading. I'm gonna park my truck at her place all night and uh, <laughs> let that put an end to things. So, but look what some of the word says about gossiping. 
Proverbs 20, verse 19, gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Is there ever such a thing as a man who talks too much? I don't know, it's in the word though, but avoid that person. Proverbs 26, verse 20, without wood, a fire goes out, without gossip, a coral dies down. So let's be sure that we're not continuing to spread things. There was a, a person that um, was, was spreading some gossip and uh, he was doing it to a person that he was, you know, this, this person he was spreading this gossip about ended up being on his deathbed. And this man felt so remorseful and he came to me and said, I'm so sorry. I've been saying things about you that I shouldn't be saying. Is there anything I can do to make this right? And the man said, you can go take a sack of chicken feathers and go up to the hill above town and release all those chicken feathers. And the guy thought, well, that seems like a strange thing. Uh, I'll go and do it. He went and did it. He came back the next day and he says, all right, I've done what you said. Is there anything else you want me to do? And the man said, I want you to go and retrieve all those feathers. And the man said, there's, there's no way I can do that. It would be impossible to go and find all those feathers. And the man simply said, uh, that's exactly what gossip does. Is it sends things out in a damaging way to where you cannot get those things back. And so it's better for us to be careful that what we're saying is true, it's right. You make sure that what you're saying is true. Just because you heard it from another person doesn't mean you need to go and spread that. You need to make sure it's true. And, and you know, for heaven's sake, the, the Christian gossip always gets guys by, you know what, have you heard about, we gotta just pray for that person. Have you heard about that? We get, let's just, I just wanna tell you so we can pray. For, and it's just in so doing, just passing on gossip. Be sure that what you're doing is for the benefit and the help of another person. It goes on to say in that, in that um, few verses two, in verse two, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. We see that same kind of principle in Psalm 1. One, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts bad or corrupts good habits. So be careful you're not falling along in the crowd. That's what happens oftentimes in, in gossip. You're just kind of being led along by what others are, are doing or saying, and you just kind of follow along in the crowd and end up doing evil. Be careful that that is not what's going to happen. And so uh, it says in verse four, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you'd refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So here's what we're called to do. Nation of Israel is called, if you have an enemy and you see them in need, for the love of God, help them out. See, to deny them help in time of need only reveals your own stubborn and sinful heart and attitude in that situation. It's not something that should be marking the Christian. Jesus instructs us as believers to be praying for those who are a thorn in our side. Matthew chapter five, if we can put up, Matthew five verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, there's something wonderful that happens, I believe, when we go and pray for those 
that we would otherwise not want to be praying for is that we begin to develop a heart for them. We begin to see them through the Lord's eyes. God is loving and gracious. And when we begin to bring them before a loving, gracious, heavenly father, we begin to develop that same kind of heart for those that we might otherwise wanna curse rather than bless. We begin to see how the Lord forgives and, and reconciles and it's what he desires for us in our human relationships. Listen, life is too short to hold on to grudges and to be bitter, isn't it? And bitterness only hurts you and handicaps you from God's best in your life. Forgive and walk in grace towards others. When you see somebody that you might deem as an enemy that's in need, go and do the loving Christ-like thing and be a help to them. Holding a grudge against someone means, this is what Tim Keller said, holding a grudge against someone means you think you know what they deserve and you take it upon yourself to give it to them. And we need to leave that with the Lord, right? Many of the people Christians have held grudges towards are the same people they're gonna be spending eternity in heaven with. I think, man, what an awkward reading that's gonna be for some people that have been just denying any kind of reconciliation or, or friendship or relationship with somebody this side of eternity. And suddenly in heaven, it's like, there's the Lord gonna be like, hey, have you uh, met so-and-so? Oh, uh, yeah, actually, Lord, uh, yeah, I kind of knew them down on earth there. It wasn't really that good. You're like, well, you know, go spend some time, get to know each other because you're gonna be here forever, right? So it's like, what a weird concept that is. But man, I, I pray that we're not putting ourselves in a situation here in this world where it's gonna be a weird, awkward situation in heaven, but that we're maintaining good relationships with one another. Verse six goes on to say, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not justify the wicked. So just because a person may be poor or, or not able to adequately defend himself, don't abuse the situation. Give them a fair trial is what is being instructed here. Just because somebody's poor and maybe can't, can't uh, help themselves, don't, don't abuse that situation. Give them a, a fair trial. And notice what it says, do not kill the innocent and righteous. Wow. When I read this, I, I think of just the, the crazed fascination we see today towards abortion. That's certainly come to the light more so with the overturning of, of Roe versus Wade. People today are crying out, holding rallies for, you know, women's rights, actually calling it health care. And this all being done in the name of being able to abort or kill human life, babies. And they're doing so under the guise that not being able to do so is only going to threaten the life of an expectant mother, potentially. And to see how the envelope continues to get pushed to advocating now for you know, late-term abortions, it's, it's a twisted and, and wicked culture that's around us that we need to be praying for these people because there has been uh, just an outcry for the rights towards killing human life. And it is so sad and it grieves the heart of the father. This is something that he upholds and says, listen, let this not be named among you. Murder destroys the very person God has created in his very image. It's a devaluing of the precious gift of life that he's given to us. And we need to be sure that we're upholding the sanctity of life at, at all costs. 
goes on to say in verse eight, and you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So accepting a bribe, what that does is it causes a person to overlook what they know to be right. They kind of turn aside, turn a blind eye to, oh, here's the right thing to do, but because you're bribing me, I'm gonna do the opposite of that or the other alternative. And it kind of caused you to turn a blind eye to doing what you know to be right. And that was a very common problem in the ancient Near East, right? Putting out a bribe, I mean, that, that got you places, but it was not what God intended. So Israel's to be sure that they're not doing these things and they're to be sure they're not gonna oppress a stranger, it says. See, Israel was to have compassion on the stranger. Why so? Because they themselves were strangers in a foreign land under oppression and, and bondage and brutality there in Egypt. They know what that's like. And so now they're to be careful that they're not going to mistreat people based on their status, just as they themselves were previously mistreated in a foreign land. So they need to have a deeper sensitivity and concern for those that are in a situation of being strangers or being oppressed. You know, and in much the same way, we all were wretched sinners, none of whom deserved forgiveness and salvation. Yet we've experienced God's great grace and mercy, haven't we? And how we need to exemplify that with others too. Understanding where we once were, keeping that before us so that we can better show that kind of grace and support to other people rather than looking down or condemning or, or, or judging or mistreating others as people were prone to do. So all these things that we've seen here, verses one to nine, are all, again, this amplification of the law and more so an amplification of the ninth commandment, uh, which says in Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So it's all, that's kind of a common theme that we see through these verses here about bearing false witness, uh, upholding a, a, a right witness here. God's a God who wants truth to rule in all things, right? Why so? Because he's a God of his word. There's one thing that God cannot do and that is to lie. It says in Titus 1, verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Aren't you glad that God is a God who upholds his word, keeps his word, he cannot lie, he is dependable, he is faithful, and we can trust in him. And he wants those that call themselves followers of Christ to follow suit and to be people of their word. I pray that we will be people that are true, to our word, but true to God's word, and that we're seeking always to uphold truth and righteousness as is being laid out for us in these first nine verses. Well, verse 10 moves on to talk more and break down the, the law of Sabbath. It says in verse 10, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat 
And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So here, God lays down this principle of the Sabbath. God loves to operate on the six and one principle, right? Let your land be productive for six years, but now on that seventh year, you're just to let it go. Don't do anything, right? I would love a year like that where I just don't have to do anything with our yard or gardens. We just let it go. Wouldn't that be nice? Just have a nice, refreshing break. Honey, I think we should, we should implement that, but that's not going to go far. I know that, but, um, but so the land is, is to be just un. not unproductive, but they're to just kind of let it be. And for that seventh year, just let it do its thing. And in that seventh year, it's gonna perhaps continue to grow. There's gonna be things left over. It may kind of have a, a, a bit of growth, but that's to be now an opportunity for those that are poor to go and just have at it to just go and eat of it and to be provided for, kind of like God's welfare system in this day. Some have wondered, maybe there were some that had, you know, staggering Sabbath year so that there was always a place that people could go and eat. I'm not sure about that, but that's an interesting thought. Now, some may begin to think when they hear something like this, well, how are we gonna make it if we go a year without farming? How are we gonna have anything to provide for us if this is it? But God in his wisdom knew that to farm the land repeatedly without any break to it is eventually gonna cause that land just to, to go barren and not produce at all. It's gonna get so, so kind of dry and barren that it's not gonna be productive any longer. So it may seem like a sacrifice, but God was actually ensuring their, productive, their um, productivity as they move into the land of, of Cain and Israel that they're going to inherit. God says, I want this land to remain productive for you. And here's the way that that's gonna happen. Seventh year, don't do anything. Don't keep trying to till the land and and reproduce, just let it have its way. And and that's a principle that farmers know today, to leave a portion of your your land and just kind of give it a time where it can rest. And it's going to be even more productive. How we need to trust God, we often, don't know the reasons why he does what he does. And sometimes we can sit there scratching our head thinking, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem this is gonna be helpful. And yet how we need to trust God because he knows what's best and he operates in ways that are for our good and are ultimately for the best. And so we need to trust him in that. So again, helpful for the land, but a blessing to the poor. And in the same way, People were not to become workaholics. Six days, you're to work. The seventh day, take a breather. Kick back, relax, make a virgin pina colada, sit on the lawn chair and just have a nice Sabbath, right? Does that sound good? So it's, it's a shame to see today how, you know, we've kind of failed to follow and not, so much the church, but just in the world, how there's been just this drive for, you gotta work, man. If you wanna get anywhere, you gotta put in your hours. You gotta sacrifice. You gotta sacrifice family. You gotta sacrifice this. If you're gonna get up that corporate ladder, man, you gotta put in your time. You gotta put in your dues and you just gotta go for it. And we've kind of you know, conditioned people with that sort of mentality. 
And what people have found all through it, they may have gotten where they wanted to, but the damage that was left behind just was not worth it. It's not worth it. Put in your time, but make sure you're taking time to rest and to be refreshed. And I love how it says that. Even, even those that are, are working for you, give them that time where they can rest and be refreshed. God desires us to experience those times of just being refreshed. Otherwise, we're gonna be depleted and we're gonna have nothing to give that's gonna be of any worth. So take time to be refreshed. That's an important principle in God's economy of things. Now, interestingly, upon entering the land of, of Canaan, the promised land, the Israelites did not follow through with this law. They failed to take that Sabbath year. They continued to till the land and did not give it a break on the seventh year and they paid a price for that disobedience. Why? Because God says, you owe me. You owe me, in fact, all those Sabbath years that amounted to 490 years. For 70 years, they failed to give that Sabbath. So 490 years, or sorry, not 70 years, uh, they were gonna be captives for 70 years to pay back those 490 years that they failed to give a Sabbath. And so Babylonians came in, took them away and led them into captivity. And, and, and Jeremiah knew that this was exactly the reason why. And he began to see that it was for this appointed time that they failed to give the land their, their Sabbath. God allowed that land to lay rest. That's how important it was to the Lord. Verse 13, and in all that I've said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Now, to be circumspect means to be watchful, to be on guard, to be aware of what's going on. Now, listen, we may not worship idols or other gods in such a blatant way as they did at this time, as they did in the Old Testament times, but we can easily follow after things that have nothing to do with God. I think of how easy it is to be lured into the streams of culture. We have so many voices sounding off these days through social media, movies, advertising, that before we know it, we just become sounding boards of the enemy's agendas. If you've not been paying attention, I mean, we see this happening more and more as in pulpits and churches becoming these mouthpieces for unbiblical trends or, or teachings speaking forth these things that are, are not of God. We need to be watchful of these things and be on guard from it. God says, don't even let these things be mentioned or heard from your mouth. You may be hearing about this, but be on guard that you know what's of the Lord and what's an idol, what's not of God, what begins to take the place of God. Be on guard. We move in to look at some feasts here in verse 14. And here we read there three times, you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty in the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your mail shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Very, 
Very, very important. Last point there. Okay, we'll get into why that says that there. But So here's the whole thing about feasts now. And of all the various feasts, there were three that all Jewish males were required to go before the Lord at the appointed time and, and bring their sacrifices and worship the Lord there. So here they are. They are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now these feasts were to be, first of all, a commemoration of what God has done for them practically. And secondly, it's an expectation of what he'll do for them prophetically, all right? It's a commemoration of what God has done for them practically, but it's also an expectation of what he's gonna do for them prophetically. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, now this took place right after Passover. Often it became synonymous with this feast. The 14th day of Nisan was the Passover, the 15th day of Nisan, Unleavened Bread for the next seven days. And so these things became kind of synonymous together. And that feast was to commemorate the Israelites' deliverance out of Egypt, right? The great Passover, the great deliverance of God, but then they were to prepare their meal, their bread without yeast. They weren't to wait for it to rise because they were to make haste fleeing out of Egypt. So this is the idea of unleavened bread, how God delivered them uh, very quickly, swiftly out of Egypt here. But then again, we know that leaven is a picture of sin and how God had delivered them, purified them, and now has set them apart to where they were to be a distinct people. They weren't to be a people that were marked by sin any longer. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread remembers the work that God had done for them. Now this Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread had prophetic significance with a future Passover because it'd be in a future Passover that Jesus Christ would come on the scene and he'd be crucified on that Passover as he would begin to establish for us our great deliverance from sin and setting us free, bringing in forgiveness of sin, purifying us. He was that, that lamb that takes away the, the lamb of God, our Passover lamb. And we've been granted forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him. He is our great deliverer. So it all points ahead to what would be accomplished in Jesus. Second feast, Feast of Harvest or Feast of Weeks, that took place 50 days after Passover, or you could say seven weeks after Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there you have the idea of Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest. This is the time to present a, an offering of new grain in the summer wheat harvest to the Lord. It, it showed joy and thankfulness for the Lord's blessing and provision for them in the harvest. It's sometimes referred to as Matan Torah, which means giving of the law, as it's believed God received or, or God gave to Moses uh, the Ten Commandments here at this time. Now this feast, Looked ahead, of course, to Acts chapter two and a future Pentecost. There the Holy Spirit would be poured out and a new harvest took place, the church, right? Again, all points ahead to a further work that would be done. Peter explained that what the people were seeing there in Acts two on that day of Pentecost, they were seeing what was recorded in Joel chapter two, where Jesus had risen, was exalted at the right hand of the Father, and now the Holy Spirit was poured out as Jesus ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit was given. And so, day of Pentecost, Peter preaches that great message, explains what's going on, and it says that uh, people repented and about 3,000 were saved that day. See, 
what's happening was the new covenant is now being initiated 50 days after Christ was crucified. All tying in, fitting exactly with what these feasts were previously celebrating or how they were celebrated, but now had a greater fulfillment in and through Jesus and his ministry. Well, third feast is the Feast of Tabernacles or in gathering. And that is a week long celebration of the fall harvest and a time to build booths. This is a, a neat festival. It's still celebrated, you know, this way. Today, you go to Israel during Feast of, of Tabernacles and people are out on the streets. They got their, their little temporary lean-tos and shelters. And this commemorated God's provision and care for them as they came out of Egypt and were led through the wilderness and how God provided for them and took care of them for those 40 years in the wilderness. This celebration is a reminder of God's faithfulness and protection of Israel. Now, two ceremonies were part of that last day of Sukkot, which is a Feast of Tabernacles. First of all, giant golden lampstands were lit in the temple courtyard and people carrying torches marched around the temple. Then they set these lights around the walls of the temple indicating that the Messiah would be coming and he would be a light to the Gentiles. Second kind of um, practice or ceremony was that a priest would go and carry water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple, symbolizing that when Messiah comes, the whole earth will know God as the waters cover the sea, as Isaiah eleven nine 9 says. Now, when Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last day of the feast, Remember what Jesus said in John chapter seven? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As he speaks that out, priests are walking up with these you know, pots of water from the pool of stone to bring and pour on the altar in the temple. And Jesus says, listen, if anyone's thirsty, where you're gonna really be quenched is through me and my life. The next morning, while the torches were still burning as again, a part of this festival, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Jesus showing that all these things that you're celebrating, all these things are having their fulfillment ultimately in me. Now Sukkot represents the final harvest when all nations will share in the joy and the blessings of God's kingdom. See, this feast of Thanksgiving is the only one of the feasts that we see in God's word that we're gonna be celebrating during the millennial reign of Christ here on earth. And you go, why would we be celebrating? Why are we celebrating any of these things when again, it's all been fulfilled in Christ? Well, again, Feast of Tabernacles is gonna be a wonderful opportunity to just reflect on and remember God's care and provision and protection for us in our pilgrimage through this wilderness that we call earth and how God has brought us through and delivered us, taking care of us to where now we are celebrating him for all of eternity. We'll forever be grateful for God's protection and provision for us in our lives. So Zechariah 14, verse 16, 19 shares how this is the one feast that we're gonna be celebrating even in the millennium. Man, it's gonna be exciting to think of the things that we're gonna be doing while Christ is reigning on this earth. We're living in this world before this world is destroyed and new heaven and new earth is created. Like the things that we're gonna be seeing happening through that thousand year reign, it's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be fun. All right. And then so we saw that amazing 
incredible last verse that we read there, verse 19, don't boil a young goat in his mother's milk. And you go, what? That just seems so out of place. Now, that seems like a bit of a strange rule, but what was going on is that this was a, a common pagan fertility ritual that was being done. The Israelites, you see, were called to come out and be separate from them. They weren't to be like their neighbors. And we saw, as you go through God's word, how often they were pulled into the very things that they saw their pagan neighbors doing. Well, this is one thing that that was taking place and God says, you're not to do that. And again, uh, another purpose in these dietary laws that God gave them, it wasn't to restrict them from, man, I don't want you to get onto this whole you know, shrimp thing, because man, you're just gonna get so caught up in that. It's not gonna, no, it was for separation from neighbors, but also for health for them. So it served no doubt a health benefit, but it served as a clear separation from the practices of, of their neighbors as well. Now today, many observant Jews still kind of uphold this where they say, we will not eat milk and cheese together because of this verse. They like, won't do it. They feel that the, the meat may have possibly come from the same cow that, that produced the cheese. So there's no cheeseburgers allowed. There's no like, you know, milkshakes with your burger. When you go to Israel, you still kind of experience these kind of separations. You don't mix these two things. So it's a little bit of a, a challenge, but you get through it nonetheless. But um, verse 20, let's move on. We're gonna look at, at God's provision here now for them. And this is, this is, Interesting and exciting. Verse 20 says, Behold, I sent an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Verse 25, so you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So God says, listen, I'm gonna send an angel before you who's gonna keep you in the way and he's gonna bring you into the place that I prepared for you, the, the promised land, Canaan. I'm gonna, he's gonna bring you in. He's gonna keep you in the way. Now, this is no ordinary angel. It's not just some angel like Michael or Gabriel. God says, this is my angel. And he says, I put my name in him. My name is in him. So I believe this is speaking of the angel of the Lord. And anytime that we see the angel of the Lord in scripture, I believe we're speaking of a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday as Curtis shared from Genesis chapter 16. Referencing there, the angel of the Lord, we see him uh, in, in Genesis 22, verse seven, we see him in Exodus chapter three, verse two. And I believe this is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So, so God is at work now in just leading, directing, and, and bringing his people in through the angel of the Lord. And, and notice this, he's just assuring the people 
that he's gonna be with them. And not just in some spiritual sense, but in a real physical manifestation through this angel of the Lord. That's just the, the graciousness of God. And notice this angel would keep them in the way and bring them in the place that is prepared for them. That's just what Jesus does for us. Jesus, you see in his ministry, goes before us, he protects us, he's interceding for us, and guess what? He's preparing a place for us that where he is, we may be also. John 14, verse two to four, my father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, not only does he prepare a place for us, but he prepares us for the place as we'll see as we move along in the rest of this chapter. But notice, when God says, my name is in him, that name of, of God is Jehovah. We can put this, this next slide here. Jehovah is taken from the, the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Yahweh, which is just four consonants, Y-H-W-H. We don't know what the exact name of God is, whether it's Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah or, you know, Jahweh. Like, we don't know, but interesting, Jesus' name is literally Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. The very name of God is in him. And more so, God's name being in him meant that he was in full representation of God. They were in complete unity. I and the Father are one, Jesus would say. Now, this promise here, God says, I'm, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna deliver you. Like, I, I'm gonna take sickness away from the midst of you. No one suffer miscarriages uh, or be barren in your land. Now, these things are all based upon their obedience. The blessing and the protection would be conditioned upon their faithfulness and obedience to uphold God's word. Now, here's the key. The land was theirs unconditionally by God's grace. God didn't say, I'm gonna do my best and give you the land. Gotta see how it goes with you. I'm gonna try my heart. God in it says, not I will, but he says, I have given you the land. Every place you set your foot, I've given you this. I, I have done it. It's yours. This is an unconditional promise by God's grace. Just as we've been saved and inherit eternal life by God's grace, but the amount that we experience joy and the fruitful life depends on our faith and faithfulness. Are we walking in obedience to his word? Listen, we may be offline from God's word. It doesn't change the fact that we're saved, but it's gonna certainly change the way that we enjoy that relationship with God and enjoy that salvation. And so it would be for the people of Israel. Uphold these things, walk in obedience and faithfulness, and you're gonna see just this blessing upon you goes on to say in verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Verse 32. 
You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, God interestingly says in verse 28, I'm gonna send hornets before you. Now the question begs to be asked, are these like literal hornets? Because that's gonna certainly get me running. If there's like hornets, I'm like out of there. It's not gonna take me long to pack up and to flee. So it's very possible. There's debate over what this is speaking of. Is literal hornets? Could be, and it could be that it's a reference to to Egypt. Isaiah used a similar kind of of reference when he used he talked of flies, meaning Egypt. He talked about bees, meaning Assyria there in Isaiah chapter seven, verse eight. So it could be that's what's being referenced, that God would, would raise up other armies that would be like kind of this swarm of hornets coming in uh, against the people. Nevertheless, what we're seeing here is that God is going to go before them and he's going to bring confusion to the nations there. God is going to do the work of driving them out. And guess what? We should have the same confidence as that, that God is at work in our lives. God is at work to bring about, you know, that, that deliverance and freedom. And, and it says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the kind of confidence we need to have as we continue to follow the Lord and, and trust, trust him in all these things. Now, notice it says there in verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in one year. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out. Now that's not always fun, isn't it? This acquisition of the land would not be an immediate thing. It would be a gradual process, even though God was able just to drive them out in in just one, one wave in the arm and the nations would just be gone and the land would be empty. But God knew that this wouldn't be the best for Israel. Oftentimes, the way God works in our lives, isn't it? Where we think, God, you could do this in a heartbeat. You could free me up from this. You could deliver me out of this. Why, God, is it little by little sometimes? Because again, God wants us to faithfully trust him and follow him and lean upon him. And it's in those times where it's little by little, as we're daily trusting him, that we grow Spiritually, we, we mature, we're strengthened, but it's one battle at a time. It's a continuous journey. And in doing so, it teaches us patience and trust and it develops us in the Lord. See, oftentimes what happens is if, if God were to just drive out all the nations, if God were just to kind of dismiss all the problems in our lives, we would easily begin to get a little complacent or comfortable but it's in those battles that we are strengthened, that we learn and see the need to lean heavily on the Lord. It's not gonna be through our own might and strength. The victory over sin and the flesh is not won by our striving or by our strength. It's a work of the Lord, sanctifying us by his spirit as we look to him. And it's realized the more that we yield to him and walk in obedience to his word. You know, the land here, that was allocated to Israel was a huge portion of real estate, one that Israel never possessed in entirety. They settled, they they compromised. They got complacent as a result, battled the enemy often. May that not be the case in our lives. Now, in, in chapter 24, 
How are we doing here? Okay. Uh, chapter 24, it's a shorter chapter. We're gonna, we're gonna cruise um, through this here. We see a wonderful invitation that's given. Look what we read here in verse one. Now God said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. It's not sweet. This invitation that we see throughout the word oftentimes, come unto me. Come unto me. Here, these people are called to come to the Lord. But notice, they're to worship from afar. Worship at a distance. Under law, you see, man was not able to come close in the way that we can now have the privilege of coming and approaching that throne of grace with boldness. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're gonna talk a lot about that here, but listen, whether you feel close or distant, here's the deal. We need to be worshipers of God. And understand that worship is not based on your emotions or your feelings, but they're based on God's goodness and holiness, his unchanging attributes. Don't let your feelings change how you come to God. Come to God and align your heart to him. Don't feel, man, I felt really distant. God, God says to the people here, come and worship afar, but know that I'm in your midst. And we worship a real and living God, that we're not waiting for some kind of feeling or experience, but in faith we come and we worship him. So reading on here in verse two, <clears throat> and Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered the one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words. This, that's where you all laugh, right? Okay, we'll get to that later. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse five. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses, yeah, laugh there. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So Moses is given special instructions now. He alone at this point now, verse two, is to come near. Moses, you see, is acting as this mediator of the covenant, just as Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 8, verse 6 says. Now, Moses is filling in the people and all that he has been told. From Exodus chapter 20 to 23, as there's been the law of God given, the amplification of the law. Now, instead of the people overconfidently saying, oh, all that he said we will do, he should have said, oh, we desire to do it. We're gonna try. No, they spoke with this apparent self-confidence. No doubt they wanted to do what was right, but based on the law that they just heard, they would have been better off to realize this was a difficult challenge. Instead of speaking forth with a dependence on their efforts, 
They should have depended on God's strength. And that's the problem that can easily plague a believer today, living with a self-help kind of attitude. People often try to accomplish in the flesh what can only be brought about through the spirit. Oh, I'm, I'm gonna... Oh, I'm going to implement this new strategy for Holy Living. Or I'm going to this conference to teach me the victorious life. When in reality, it's not what I do, but what I, I surrender and give over to the Lord. People that live lives based on effort, upon what they think they're doing to achieve a right standing with God, can either get proud and consider themselves the one to praise when things are going well, or... They can begin to live in condemnation when things are not going as good as they had hoped. Yet the harder we try, the more we're just inclined to fail. See, God wants us to learn dependency upon him and to rely on his strength and, and his sanctifying work in our lives through his spirit. We can do nothing in and of ourselves. How we need to be abiding in him. It's only through him that we can bear any fruit. It's only through the Holy Spirit reigning in us that we're gonna be empowered to live this victorious life and how we need to be surrendered to him. So there in verse four, it says that Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Interesting, this is the first mention of the written word. And again, this isn't just some word that Moses wrote down. This is what God gave in all scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Moses, as he's writing this down, definitely moved by the Spirit. So verse five says that, first of all, there's this burnt offering. That's the offering of consecration. The offering was consumed and it was as though you were consecrating your life to God. That's kind of what that burnt offering spoke of. You're laying your life down on the altar saying, consume me, take all of me, Lord. I give myself wholeheartedly to you. And then secondly was the peace offering. That's an offering of communion or fellowship it's where you'd go and roast the meat. You ate part of it. You gave part of it to God as though you were sitting down together for a meal and enjoying this time, this time of fellowship. But notice the time of communion comes after you've consecrated your life to the Lord. That's when true fellowship occurs, isn't it? After you've dedicated your life to God and are consumed by him, that's where you really begin to have that passion for the Lord. And verse eight reveals how, again, Moses took the blood from that offering and sacrifice sprinkled upon the people. And this is known as a blood covenant. It was a very sacred and binding covenant. The people all said a couple of times, hey, all that you said, we'll do. And God holds them to it. It's represented by this blood. It's a blood covenant that they were to, to follow through with this at the extended their life in a sense. But thankfully, it's through the blood of Christ that we find grace today. We were unable to keep the terms of the law, but now it's through Jesus and his blood sacrificed for us that we can be set free. 
Even before God gives the law to them, the Israelites are sprinkled with blood to let them know that there must be a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 says, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding blood, there's no remission. There's no removal of sin. And God repeats that many times. Life must be given up and a penalty must be paid before any of us can be in a right standing with God. And Jesus provided that for us. Well, verse 11, or sorry, verse nine. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And notice this, they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. Man, this is exciting and interesting stuff. Have you ever been invited to a dinner with very important guests where you just kind of feel like, man, I am so out of place here. I am so unworthy of this. Well, think about these guys right here, right? I mean, here they are, and they are being invited to a meal with God. How wild is that? Now, I'm sure you're wondering, well, how did they see God and live to tell about it? This is saying God's word that if you see me or no man can see me and live, Exodus 33, verse 20, God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. John 1:18 and 1 Timothy 6, 16 says much the same. Well, it's true that God's holiness is too great for us. That's why we must be changed, given a new eternal body to enter into his glory and spend eternity with them. These bodies cannot handle that. So how do these guys do it? Well, perhaps, and this is just conjecture, we're not sure, perhaps what they saw was a form of God, a similitude or an aspect of him. Perhaps what they saw again was a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus would say in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So we're not sure exactly how it was, but they knew they were in the presence of God. They were witnessing something about God that, that God allowed them to take in at this time. And it's interesting that they notice primarily what he's standing on, right? Maybe they're looking up and getting a glimpse up into the heavens and they're seeing, and, and they, they said that there's under his feet this paid work of sapphire stone. It would have been like this, this bluish, pure, just, and, and maybe they're looking up and seeing, you know, the sea of glass around the throne as Revelation 4 verse 6 says. We don't know exactly what they're, what they're seeing, but understand under his feet was a firm foundation, beautiful, it's heavenly. And it's a reminder that what is over our heads is simply under his feet. He's got it all under control. Aren't you glad for that? And so notice they come and they ate and they drank with them. It's a wonderful picture of communion. See, to share a meal with someone at this time was an important act of friendship. It was a big deal. And God's revealing this fellowship that they were to enjoy with him. We continue to do so through times of communion, coming to the Lord's table. And it's there that we remember the work that Jesus has done for us, bringing us into fellowship with him and with our heavenly father to where we enjoy sweet times of communion with him. That's to be an ongoing thing. 
praise the Lord for the privilege we have of his presence and being able to spend in communion with him. Oh, I pray that we're doing so. I pray that we see every day the extreme privilege we have to just take time and meet with the Lord. How exciting is that? Well, verse 12, we'll wrap this up. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I've written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. So if there's any disputes in the camp or struggles, they can go and, and talk with them. Then verse 15, Moses went up into the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up in the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is called to go on further. Just I believe God desires us to keep going further, going deeper with him. Don't settle for what you already know or what you've experienced. God is so much more. He's a great God. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing on with the Lord, seeking him, and you will be rewarded as you do. So Moses goes up now to a higher place of the Lord, and, and he's got his assistant, his servant, Joshua. Interestingly, Joshua will eventually be the one that will lead Israel into the promised land. Listen, if you want to be a good leader, learn first how to be a good servant, and that's what Joshua is doing. So Moses is going to be 40 days, 40 nights on the mountain of God. 40 is the number of testing in the Bible. And it's going to be a time of testing, not so much for Moses, but for the people of Israel who have been all too quick to say, hey, all that you say, we are going to do. Listen, they're not even going to let Moses get down from the mountain before they're breaking their word, right? We're going to see all about that in Exodus chapter 32. But from chapters 25 to chapter 31, we're going to see all that Moses was instructed in on the mountain, instructions that he's given for the tabernacle and the priesthood. Why is that important? Because it's through the tabernacle and the priesthood that God was giving people an opportunity to come and continue to worship him and meet with him and be in the tabernacle that God would meet with his people. And God wants to make provision for people to come to him. And so these instructions over the next number of chapters are gonna be about the tabernacle and the priesthood, stuff that we might look at as, as boring, but oh, so important to the livelihood of that community with God. And we're grateful that Jesus came and tabernacled among us and revealed the very glory of God among us. May we continue to take time to meet with him. It's what God desires.